Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and this is Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. As a mom of four kids in New York City and a writer myself, I know all too well how short everyone is on time, so I'm here to help. I'm going to interview authors and writers of all types about their work, especially as it relates to parenting and family issues. Hopefully you can listen while doing 8 million other things and fall in love with these talented scribes and their fantastic books, essays, and songs like I have, plus get some tips on surviving parenthood. For more about me, you can check out my essays at zibbyowens.com. This episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books has been brought to you by Chloe's Fruit, the cool way to eat fruit. You can check them out online at chloesfruit.com. I'm here today with Jill Kargman. Jill is a native New Yorker and is an insanely prolific writer. She's written multiple novels, two collections of essays, and a children's book. Her most recent essay collection was titled Sprinkle Glitter on My Grave, Observations, Rants, and Other Uplifting Thoughts About Life. To some, Jill is most well-known as the creator, writer, producer, and star of the show Odd Mom Out, a show about all the craziness of raising kids in New York, especially here on the Upper East Side, where she lives now. So welcome to Jill. Thank you, Zibby. This is fun. (laughs) So Odd Mom Out was an offshoot of your hilarious novel, Momzilla's. I'm a native New Yorker and Upper East Sider, too. Um, what were the things about the Upper East Side that you were like, I totally have to write about this? I start. I feel like the second I shout out my kids, I started collecting anecdotes of just crazy shit that people would say to me that you can't write, such as my kind of patient zero momzilla person was like, oh, my kid came out and got all 10s on the APGAR scores. And I was like, doesn't that mean like your heart's beating? It's not your SATs. <laughs> it's vital stats, you fucking weirdo. But she was bragging like the bar was already started. Someone had um, headphones on her belly at my gyno's office no. playing Mozart. And she said, apparently they, you know, become smarter if you play Mozart in the womb. And I was like, dude, you're fucking crazy. Like, why don't you squat and poop out your kid? first before you start like getting competitive about your fetus. It was so psychotic, but I knew that this was going to be something that was going to either drive me nuts or make me laugh. And I sort of opted for the latter. That's awesome. So what was it like to realize that in New York, it's such a unique parenting situation? Well, I grew up here as, you know, many people like you in the 80s. And so there was a conspicuous consumption, but I feel like there was more embarrassment of riches. Like a girl in my class um, at Spence would have her limo drop her off two blocks from school. And now they're like rolling up with the SUV and the driver and everyone's talking about wheels up in their homes. And That really worried me because that's, even though, you know, I was in that Gordon Gecko age, it wasn't like cool to talk about your golden gooses when you have like a size three shoe. And now these kids all have the trappings and the million dollar bat mitzvahs. And I was worried about New York versus other places because I think that's maybe with the exception of LA, like pretty exclusive to our city um, where it's just so over the top. And um, when Ivy was about two years old, we were outside school and she was staring at all the moms who were really nicely dressed. It was like a catwalk at pickup. And she said, how come you're the only mom at school without red bottoms on your shoes? (laughs) And I was like, wow, you're so observant. But then I was also horrified. And I realized, you know, I had to kind of explain very early to my kids. You know, they say, like, it's never too young to talk about drugs. It's also, for us, never too young to talk about um, logos, conspicuous consumption, bragging, um, just sort of listing all these things. And some of them are so innocuous, like they don't know better, Mm -hmm. some of the kids. But I had a little kid come to my house, and we ordered sushi from, like, 
some joint on First Avenue or whatever, and the kid took a bite, and she goes, it's no Haru. <laughs> and I was just like, fuck you, you little shit. But I said to my daughter after. At least it wasn't Nobu. I know. She didn't mean it. <laughs> uh, we went to, in kindergarten, a Nobu sushi-making party. Yeah. So, but I said to my friend, to Ivy, I know she, your friend didn't mean it, but, you know, that comes off as, like, very spoiled to compare. Wherever you go, you just say thank you so much. It's delicious. But I'm just obsessed with my kids never inadvertently or, or otherwise, like, saying anything about anything that could be perceived as braggadocious. But they don't, you know, we don't go to the Hamptons. We don't have a country house. So they don't, but that's come up. Like, why don't we have a country house? And I said, well, mommy doesn't drive and she hates the country. So, (laughs) I mean, it's just different strokes. But I think these kids have to be really aware. You have to bend over backwards to really um, pound the values into their skulls. Because otherwise, just by immersion and osmosis, they go out with these kids who are, you know, Sadie's almost 15 and people are like slapping down black cards. And I just said, that's not how this is going to go. You know, you're going to have a budget and this is not how some of your friends might operate. And then how did you go from observing all this to figuring out how to write about it in the best way? I don't know. I feel like because I kind of had one foot in and one foot out, I was often a loner mom and I didn't have any friends with kids at first. Now all my best friends have kids, but they're younger. So when I had Sadie, I was the only one who had kids. And so I had I had to just sort of like be the nerd in the corner and a lot of the people that I met came up together in like Lamaze or law school or whatever the fuck. And so they had a kind of a click mentality group thing and they had baby groups and they, and you know, I was just like had this kid on my hip and showed up. And um, so I was just automatically, I've never been a wallflower for sure, but I would just, because I wasn't in their group, I would just observe and hear how the kids spoke to each other. And I was kind of taking mental notes pretty quickly. And did you ever think, so you started it as Momzilla's, which was more, which was a novel form. And yes. then you transitioned it to a show. What was it like doing the two different formats for the same type of material? It's such a great question. I found it so liberating. In in the interim, I had done the essays that you mentioned. Yeah. And once I started, I couldn't stop. I now don't think I will ever do fiction books again. I don't mind writing for TV that way. But for books, I feel like I was really just me hiding behind the characters and it's so much easier to just be me you know I I don't have to say like oh this is this character's way of doing this I can just like breathe it out it it's kind of clawing its way out of me and whereas the novels felt a little bit more like deadline driven work and this just the essays came so naturally that by the time I got to tv I already had that voice and I felt just so much freer being myself I mean that's the cool thing about Turning 40, you just don't give a shit. <laughs> um, I feel like some people are like, well, is that is the character that Jill plays on the show Jill, or is it a version, a different version of her? Like, do you feel like that's you, or do you feel like it's some sort of crafted version that you want to portray? It's it's a craft, it's me at 28. Oh, so okay. so I, the Jill Weber in the show is yeah. way more stressed about, like, doing things a certain way or what people think, like, Jill, me, I don't give a rat's ass. I do not care. When I was 28, it's not that I, I, I had, you know, had come up and had this confident persona and I was very like strong in who I was. And then I had a baby and it was like someone shook the etch a sketch and all of that went out the window because I felt really vulnerable because I had this new baby to take care of. I did, they don't come with a handbook. I didn't have any friends who were going through the same thing. And I just, 
didn't feel like, you know, if somebody did something to my kid, I, I, I would get so stressed. If anyone said anything about me, I didn't give a shit. Mm-hmm. But if, like, some little nose picker was rude to my kid, I wanted to, like, bash them. So it's it's a huge recalibration in terms of being a mom and having that vulnerability again and having your kid judged applying to nursery school or kindergarten. And just that whole feeling is so uneasy. Um, but then as I got older, I just I just didn't care. I felt like okay, so what if they're taking Mandarin or they have, like, a sports coach? It's just not for our family. So we, we're very unconventional. You know, we do things our own way, but I don't give a shit. Whereas when I was 28, I definitely felt like, oh, they're all taking Mandarin. Okay, well, we're the lazy asses who aren't. <laughs> yeah. I remember when I was pregnant, everyone's like, well, are you not on the wait list yet for free to be under three? And right, which like, is what? just like a loser-sensitive like, no, like, ponytail man. I'm already behind. I'm, like, behind, and I don't even have a child. Someone said that to me, too, and I thought it was, like, the dumbest. I didn't give a shit. And then I went to one of those parties, and I was like, this is so stupid. If I had spent all that money and time trying to bash into this, it's just like, you know, there are certain cultures where there'll be a line on the street and people just join the line. They don't know what it's for, but it must be good. Right. I actually to- I do the opposite of that. Did you ever worry about sort of poking fun at the community that you're a part of? No, I feel like it's weird. I I don't I think of it as sort of poking fun, satirizing, but it's also just kind of holding like a funhouse mirror to it. And I think people, you know, when you look in a funhouse mirror, you recognize yourself. You're right. warped, but you recognize yourself. And I think everyone has had a really good sense of humor about it. I've had people who give me high fives where I feel like they're kind of the worst offenders, <laughs> like they're total right. Brooke Von Webbers, and they're like, I love the show. I'm such a Brooke. Ha, ha, ha. Right. And it's not that I was being – it's not a mean-spirited show. I'm not trying to, like, do a takedown of these women. I just – I found it kind of funny and cool that they had such a sense of humor about themselves. Or what's weird is they'll say, oh, I love how you portray so-and-so. And I'm like, that's not her. That's nobody. It's, it's not yeah. even a composite. I just came up with this character. But – um, it's a type that everyone recognizes even outside New York. I get emails and letters from all over the country, even in really small towns. And what's really interesting is that our community, you know, people live in these buildings. And so it's a little mysterious. Like you might know what a nice building is, but it's not the same thing as seeing like the huge white house with the picket fence. And so in the rest of America, I think they're even more aware of those kinds of assets and trappings and even worse they have one school they have one you know market and you have to see your mother-in-law every day and it's just not the same anonymity that new york affords yeah it's good to have the i mean it does have some benefits yeah for sure (laughs) um how was it for you when you went from being a writer to being on air and now you're this public persona what was that like in your life it was weird. It didn't matter at all to me. I didn't change. My life didn't change at all. Everyone always says like it must be so different now, but I've, it's the exact same that it always was. Like more people will come up on the street, but it's not. I'm like the for me the perfect level of exposed. Like I I don't have like you know people freaking out. I have like normal cool people come up, gay guys or moms being like I love the show and they're no- nice. They're not lunatics. Right. So it's always people I feel like I would probably be friends with if I had more time. You know, it was just, it's a nice group. Like the show attracted cerebral, funny people. And I, I always enjoy talking to people, even if they're like, you know, in a restaurant, sometimes if I'm with my family and they'll be like, I'm so sorry, but I actually still don't, I still like it. They're always nice people. They're always just like, I don't know. I think the right kind of values. So I never have had like a, a lunatic. 
And Maybe how, a couple. How do you feel about the writing part of life versus the acting part of life? You were just mentioning. Well, actually, I really am just so in awe of Lena Dunham because what they do is they with girls, they had a concurrent writer's room. I, it started and then they started shooting. So she was doing both at the same time. I could never do that. I don't know how she did that. I don't have the bandwidth. I think I'm just like tired and old, but we had our writer's room first for 10 weeks. So we wrote everything was fully done. Maybe there were some tweaks and there was like a punch-up room with other writers that we brought in to like just throw in some jokes. And then we had production. So, you know, I was picking out like the bedspread or things that I wanted to get it right, like quintessential Upper East Side little details. And and then we started shooting. So when I was acting, I was just acting. Sometimes I would go to the monitor to just like take a peek, but I had a showrunner, Lara Spots, who was my life and my backbone. And she really, I trusted her completely. She grew up in New York. She's an Upper West Sider, but she gets the world. And so I knew I could just kind of have her run the show while I focused on memorizing my lines and kind of being in it. And um, that worked so well for me. I really enjoyed both equally. I don't know that I could do the concurrent thing. I think I would lose my shit. (laughs) And is there ever going to be like an Odd Mom Out movie? A lot of people have asked me that recently. I hadn't thought of it. I would love to do it. If there are any investors listening, (laughs) yes, I would love to do that one day. Um, But, you know, Bravo really took a risk doing scripted comedy. It wasn't going to be their plan, but we really hit it off. We developed it together. A lot of people say like, why isn't on Comedy Central or HBO, like, why don't you shop it around? I said, I didn't shop it around because they came to me. They wanted to like work on something and we really developed it together and people always say oh development hell like this was development heaven it was just completing each other's sentences and I felt like they totally got what I was trying to do and they let me do it and it was really the wild wild west I'm never gonna have that kind of freedom again otherwise it's like they're just there's you're noted to death they're busting your balls they don't want you to insult advertisers or um curse and I feel like I had this remarkable freedom that I probably will never have again. But yes, I would love to do a movie. And are you, how do you feel about the show coming to an end? Devastated. I, when they said, you know, we really want to focus on reality, my show's really expensive. So when they do like $10 million for a season and another, you know, $2 million to market it, they could make a reality show that's an hour instead of my half hour that's a fifth of the price. So with marketing and everything. So it's just, it behooves them for their Bravo business model to make more reality. And then for the scripted, I think the drama is more of an echo of the reality shows where it's like fights and throwing drinks on each other. And it's just more, I guess, like what that audience is trained to be into. They're not really known for comedy. We're the, we're it. We're their only scripted comedy. And I, I, I believe the plan is that like they're done with that. They, they kind of took a risk on us. And they loved it. It got critical acclaim. It got all kinds of stars on the channel that would not be on there. Um, But it's just not financially viable compared to reality shows if that's your business model. I get it. I really honestly, everyone's like, aren't you so pissed? And I said, honestly, I'm just so grateful that I got three seasons and that they gave a 39-year-old a show. So I felt really lucky. It's not just like, you know, so Cal Crystal's bullshit of like, I'm framing it in gratitude. Like, I'm actually truly, truly so lucky. Uh, I think it's a bad call on their part. Just for my two cents, I thought that was the best part of Bravo. Thanks, Zibby. You know, <laughs> when, I, when I'm in charge of Bravo. Um, 
So to switch gears a little bit, honestly, one of my favorite children's books is is the one that you wrote with your daughter. Oh, Sadie. thank you. Uh, Pirates and Princesses, which I think was based on our joint preschool. Yes, exactly. Experience. So you've collaborated with a lot of different authors, like Carrie, I can't pronounce the last, Carrie Kat- Kar- Karasyov. Karasyov, and your daughter. What's it like? And now, obviously, all the people who you're doing uh, TV writing with, what is it like collaborating with all these different people? And what was it like then collaborating with your daughter? Well, she actually wrote the book. I feel like um, with Carrie, it was a thorough collaboration. We took turns writing and then we would rewrite each other and it was very layered. There are sometimes chapters where I don't know who wrote what. Like, it's just very integrated. Um, same with the writer's room. We, we really broke all the storylines together as a group on a whiteboard with index cards and the whole thing. It was very brainstormy and collaborative. And then we would break off and I wrote half the scripts and, you know, we divvied up stuff, but I couldn't write all 10. And then I'll kind of go and sprinkle fairy dust on the other scripts and little Upper East Side jokes because I was the only one living. Everyone's in Brooklyn or L.A. So we brought in Angelinos who had apartments here, but they, you know, they knew some of the world just, you know, by proxy in Beverly Hills or things like that. But it's just there's some New Yorky things that. Lara and I got more. Um, but we couldn't have done it without the other writers. I mean, they brought so much to it. Um, with Sadie, it was based on a true story in her class. There was kind of this gender war in her class, and it became, it divided the whole class. And we got called in the school, and they said she was being divisive, and she's the head of the girls, and Charlie's the head of the boys. It was this whole nightmare because basically um, they said, you know, Sadie said the F word at school. And I said, Oh, I don't know where she heard that. What are you talking about? <laughs> and I said, what happened? And they said, Charlie told her her dress was hideous and she told him to fuck off. And I go, well, at least she used it in the right context. And they like did. They were like the straight line mouth emoji. They were not amused. And I mean, of course, I came home and told Harry, he's like, this is fucking hilarious. But <laughs> we wrote this book to like heal her class because there was it was so divided. And um, they do parent reader. And Sadie said, I want to write our own book. You're, you're a writer. Let's write our own book. So she really wrote it. I mean, she dictated it, and I typed it. And then we drew shitty drawings together, read it to the class. They loved it. The class got better and better. And then Harry said, my husband said, why don't you send this to your agent? I feel like this is better than some of the shit that we read her. And uh, two hours later, she called and said, you know, Penguin wants it. Oh, my gosh. So it was, like, so fast. It was so fast. And they had an illustrator in Paris who did the beautiful watercolors and so it was great, and I did a signing two nights ago for it. Yeah, at Park Avenue Christian is now called Park Children's or something. Nice. Yeah, so and they had their book fair. So it's like keeps on giving because there's always new classes of little kids being born. So it's it was really fun. I feel like there are all these children's books that sound like good ideas, mm-hmm. and like I might like them, but then the kids have like no interest. And mm-hmm. this is one I have to say that like they legitimately like want to read on their own. So. Oh, that's great! Anyway, just for what it's worth for my crew of kids. Yay. Um, before we started talking here, you were telling me about um, your favorite books of the moment and how you haven't been able to find time to read as a mom. Tell me about what books you're reading now and what you really have loved. To read. I am obsessed with Daniel Silva. He's an author based in Washington, D.C., and um, he has like crazy CIA sources or something because he knows so much. Um, basically, it's about, it follows this one character, Daniel, uh, Daniel Silva's like, you know, it's his version of himself, I guess, called Gabriel Alon. And he has, I'm, I'm like, have a crush on him. He's like this hot, like older guy and he has bright green eyes and he's this, um, fresco restorer of Renaissance ceilings in Italy and is the most in demand in the world. 
but really that's just a cover profession. He actually is so talented and is the best at it. Really, he's an Israeli spy. And it's sort of like the Munich um, plot where he's involved in the Operation Wrath of God, getting killing the terrorists who executed the wrestling team. So he is, that character is one of the Munich people. And then it's where he is now and how he's still fighting for the state of Israel and finding corruption and anti-Semitic plots all over the world in all different countries. And there's there's a lot of art heist stuff in it and Holocaust restoration, um, reparations of, of um, he's restoring the paintings, but it's reparations returning uh, looted, looted art from Jewish families. It's unbelievable. And you're sweating. You're reading it. It's like the firm or something. You're, you're spitzing your balls off. I lost three pounds like reading it. And it's so pulse pounding. I mean, you said you read like 20 books and how I read 17 read books in seven months, which I have not done since becoming a mom 15 years ago. I have not, never read that many books. I was like slogging through Hamilton because I felt <laughs> like I had to read it. And I read, you know, I've read, you know, a few books a year, but not, not voraciously like when I was in my 20s. Now I have never, not even in my 20s, have I read 17 books like this fast. And they're, they're so all encompassing. I think about them all the time. And what do you have, what do you want to do next on your wish list? I know you said you were going to take some time and think about it. Do you want to write more books? Do you want to write more TV stuff? Do you, I really want to write a book, but not now. I, I feel like when my kids, when I'm old, I can go back to that. I love writing books, but it was very solitary. And once I had the drug of being in a writer's room, I really want to keep doing TV writing for now. Um, but I also love acting. I feel like I don't want to just like go be an actress because certain roles have come up that, um, you know, for experience, quote unquote, but I just don't want to do stuff that's not my taste. Like I'd rather just not work than do like crappy things. Um, but I'd love to write another show and act in it as well. I just don't know what it's going to be as yet. But in the meantime, I would love to you know, pursue other acting things that are cool or, um, you know, maybe like work on a, a movie rewrite or something like that. Like there are jobs that come up from time to time where you can just like polish a script and put your jokes in it and stuff like that. Little projects that have a, a, a short span time span. Um, but yeah, we'll see. I don't know what the next year will bring. I feel like I want to just sort of go with the flow and see what falls in my lap or what, what low-hanging fruit there is that I can go for. Because um, with three kids, I can't really be like, oh, I'm picking up and moving to LA to like pursue this job. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a New Yorker. I don't drive. I don't function well out there. I visit a lot. But um, I'm not so committed to being a screenwriter that I'm going to move out there or really like pursue it the way a hungry 25 year old would. I'm not that hungry, I guess. I'm lazy. How, how have your kids responded to what you've put out in the world so far? They love it. I feel like they love it. They're, they're super proud of me. I think Sadie was really embarrassed that I had like my butt out on the show and like was dancing with my cellulite. But I sort of, I saw it, I saw it as like a moment to say like, I don't give a shit. I have three kids that's what you get. You get cellulite and it's totally worth it. And I don't care. And by the way, if I saw mom doing like an underwear dance party on TV and she had like perfect thighs with no cellulite, I'd be like, fuck you. That's so bullshit. You got lipo. I can't believe you guys even are critical of how you looked in that episode because I would like love to look <laughs> like that. So, um, you know, I can't, I'm glad your Sadie's not looking at me dancing around is all I have to say. <laughs> um, 
Uh, what about other people out there who are dying to write something, be writers, be authors? What advice would you have? I always say just write it. I feel like this is such a new age, and I'm really lucky because I came up at the beginning of the internet, so I was always writing. I think a lot of people in the olden days, you know, they had the typewriter with the stack of typed paper. Now you can just hit publish and have a blog. You can get a following. You can make a YouTube movie. People make shorts. I mean, I just was posting a guy in my crew from Odd Mom Out wanted to be a director. He made a short. He now has a million views. You know, anyone can just create their own stuff now with iMovie, and I feel like do it. Write it. You know, you the way you hone your voice is just by like doing more and more and more and more. And I feel like you have to be uninhibited. My other piece of advice is never write for the marketplace. I had so much bad advice throughout my career um, of people saying, no, no, moms, that's boring. Don't write about moms. You want to write about this or don't New York is over. You want to write about the suburbs. Suburbs are hot. Cause when I was starting um, Momzilla's Desperate Housewives was the number one show. Mm-hmm. And they were like, you want to write about like a cul-de-sac and all the affairs. And I said, no, I don't. <laughs> I want to do a New York dark comedy. And I remember, you know, hearing that there's just not, you know, New York, there's, I can't have ev- write every book that I ever do in New York. And I was like, why the fuck not? I, you know, Woody Allen did it. There's, yeah. there's so much in the city and I'm a diehard New Yorker and I think you should write what you know. And I always feel like, in the same way that it feels forced when someone comes here and, you know, in a movie you see people pay through the outside cab window and you're like, no, 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 that's not how that happens. Um, You know, I would never appropriate another culture and presume that I could go in and write like a great suburban comedy because I don't live it. I don't know. It's just not for me. Not that you can't have an imagination and do it. I just think a lot of it's research intensive. Maybe I'm just lazy. So what would you say is your main goal in the in the things that you write? Are you trying to make people laugh? Are you trying to make people feel less alone? Are you trying to just create, you know, this funhouse mirror sensation that you were talking about? It's like such what, a good question. Yeah. I would say just not I hate the word authentic, but just like the honesty of writing something that's clawing its way out of you. I think if you do anything other than that, it just feels like work. For me, it, it's always felt like work. You know, if I'm doing a magazine article or whatever, and it's a job and it's fun, but it feels like a job. I'm trying to really, from now on, <laughs> um, just write things that are tearing out of me that I have to get out, like some kind of catharsis. Because when I do that, I notice that it does all the things that you said. People feel less alone. They laugh. They Those are the things that people talk to me about that that they react to you know they might say I saw your article in this big fucking deal I don't you know what I mean like that I don't need I don't need like attention for writing you know an interview with somebody I like someone reading something and saying like yes that's me and having that that moment and that happens the most when it's something that's like breathing and I shit it out Thank you. Thank you for that visual. Here's some diapers. Here's some Depends for you. Don't have enough diapers in my house. I knew that one. No, I'm kidding. Um, Well, thank you so much, Joe. Thank you, Zibby. So So much fun. hearing about um, all your work, and I cannot wait to hear what you decide to do next. Yay. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please subscribe. And this episode has been sponsored by Chloe's Fruit, the cool way to eat fruit. You can check them out at chloesfruit.com. Thanks again.